0: We turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We read the chapter taking special care to note the first five verses of the chapter which comprise our text this evening. We hear the inspired word of God. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish." Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answered, and he answering said unto them, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art least, loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, dost thou dost not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan hath bound, lo these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond? On the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, "Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, "Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, "Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many I say unto you will seek to enter in and shall not be able." When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart thence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I mentioned, our text is found in the first five verses. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is here in his Prian ministry. And he's instructing the people concerning his second coming in judgment and the need to be ready and to be watching. Afterward, a number of the audience approach Jesus with horrible news. Pilate has slain a number of Galileans in the temple, mingling their blood with the sacrifices. The bearers of these ill tidings have already drawn up in their own mind their conclusions about this whole matter. And they await the response of Jesus. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, doesn't even wait for them to ask the question he informs them immediately that their conclusions are erroneous. Supposing that these Galileans were sinners above all because they suffered such things? Is that what you suppose? No, Jesus says. Rather, you who bring this horrible news must pause and you need to see your own sinfulness and you need to repent. Lest you also face judgment, except ye repent, ye shall likewise all perish. We take this passage, beloved, as our admonition and encouragement to examine ourselves before we come to the table of the Lord next Sunday morning. You and I suffer from the same self-righteousness that characterized these disciples that came to Jesus. Our nature is not to look at ourselves, but our nature is to condemn the sins of others and to be more easily able to see the sins of others than our own and to harshly judge the sins of others. When affliction touches our brother, our sisters, our neighbors, we have a tendency to esteem ourselves and to assert or to think think it serves them right they had it coming as we prepare to come to the table of the lord our focus must be on our own hearts our own thoughts our own minds not that of our brothers our sisters those who are sitting in the pew with us or behind us do you know your own sinfulness and do i do i know the horror of my sin and what my sin deserves that I perish everlastingly in hell? Do I know my great need for a Savior, Jesus Christ? The issue isn't what happened years ago. Perhaps years ago I was able to see a vision or I was able to know the wonder of having been converted. The issue is now. Do you know your sinfulness? And do you know the horror of your sin and your need for Christ? And what are you doing to show that? How does your life reflect that need? Is repentance your experience? We examine our hearts, beloved, as we look at this passage. Repent or perish? Noting, first of all, the severe judgment. Secondly, the self-righteous response. And finally, the sincere examination that's necessary. These were Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The incident that's recorded here to Jesus is truly horrific. There's no other recorded evidence of this, not in sacred or secular literature. And so it's difficult for us to understand precisely what happened. But from this brief account, we're able to fill in some of the details. Certain Galileans were in the temple in Jerusalem to present their sacrifices to the Lord. Now, seldom was anyone allowed to bring those sacrifices other than the priests. And the priests were the ones then that brought the sacrifices before the temple. But in a few instances, when the priests were not faithful or they weren't present, then it was required sometime for the men of Israel to take their sacrifices and bring them personally to the priest at the altar. It must have been that there were men gathered with their sacrifices at the altar when Pilate's soldiers rushed into the temple and they killed those Galileans. And the result was that their blood got mingled with the sacrifices that they were bringing. Now, we're not told of any motivation on Pilate's part. Any suggestion that we might make would be pure speculation. We know Pilate was cruel, he was a fierce governor. He was known to have performed many cruel actions during his ten years in office. Now, news regarding this event comes to the area where Jesus is now laboring. A number of people from his audience approach Jesus with a report of this tragic event, and they're eager to hear a response from Jesus. Now, it's true of us, beloved, that we hear almost weekly of terrible disasters that take place throughout America and throughout the world. School and church shootings, hurricanes, fires that cause tremendous devastation and destruction. And as we face those tragic events, how is it that we respond? Now it's quite likely that these Galileans who were affected by this tragedy were from the border of Samaria. And that likely adds to the Jews' concerns and why they jumped to this conclusion. The Samaritans had succeeded from the true worship of God. And they were a mixed religion. And as a result, they were hated by the Jews. And the Jews were quick to condemn the Samaritans. And to applaud themselves for their uprightness. The Jews would be quick to say they had it coming. It's no wonder that this happened to them. After all, their worship was not very pure, they had compromised in so many ways. Reports were that these Galileans, who were Samaritans, were very wicked. Now, Jesus produces then another illustration to those hearers. 18, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. He reminds them of an incident that happened not among the Galileans and Samaritans, but among them, among the Jews themselves. He reminds them of a time when 18 were killed, when a tower in Jerusalem fell on top of them. Now, Jesus' question is this. Would you say the same thing about those Jews that you're saying now so easily, so quickly about these Galileans? Some of them perhaps even knew family members, friends who had been killed. And it's for that reason that Jesus now brings it home and makes it more pertinent for them. Would you say, though they also were greatest sinners because that tower fell on them, Now, these were terrible events. What Jesus is doing here is he's changing the focus of the listeners. Instead of dwelling on the sins of others, jumping to conclusions regarding God's providence in the life of others who are affected, Jesus exposes the self-righteousness of the bearers of those horrible tidings. And Jesus emphasizes the fact judgment is going to happen. And judgment is going to come close to you. As the end of the world comes closer, we expect those judgments. How are we to understand them? How are we to respond to them? Suppose these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans. That's the self-righteous response that is exposed. It becomes evident from Jesus' response that their opinion already had been formed. They had concluded these Galileans were killed because they were such great sinners. Otherwise, God would never have allowed this to happen. These men were killed because they were greater sinners than any of the other Galileans, and especially greater sinners than the Jews. It was common for the Jews of Jesus' time to jump to conclusions like that, to conclude that a personal tragedy or a physical handicap was God's specific judgment on that individual or on that family. And you remember the question of the disciples in John 9, verses 1 and 2. Master, who did sin? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember, they came across the man who was born blind. Immediately, what are the disciples thinking? Jesus, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin that he's born blind? And Jesus responds, this man's blindness has nothing to do with the sins of his parents or himself. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That is, God providentially made this man blind so that now Jesus could heal him. And so that therefore this could be a testimony to thousands concerning the power and the glory and the greatness of God. Those who now approach Jesus with this dreadful news of the Galileans slain by Pilate are of that same mentality as the disciples were. They've concluded these Galileans were slain because they were sinners above all the other Galileans. Does that same mentality live among us? More specifically, does it live within me, within you? The reasoning is very simple. God punishes sin. God's punishment we know is eternal in hell, but also temporal in time. And therefore, those who experience tremendous suffering and tremendous hardship and struggles in this life must evidently be under God's judgment. They must be great sinners. And God now is simply punishing them for the sins for which they're guilty. Too quickly and easily, we become like Job's friends. That was the response of the friends of Job to Job. And too easily that becomes our attitude when troubles occur in various individuals' lives. Quickly we jump to that conclusion. They must have done something bad. There must be something going on in their lives that God is exposing. After all, chastisement is for profit. And so God is using this to somehow expose and get at some serious sins in their lives. And we judge them then. And we look down on them as though we're more righteous. After all, we don't have those same problems going on in our lives. But God is putting them in the lives of these others. And so we elevate ourselves above others. God has spared us because of our faithfulness, because of our obedience because of our sensitivity to sin. And the conclusion then is that salvation has to do with man. Salvation is grounded and rooted in man's faithfulness. I've been active in my prayer life. I've maintained my devotions. I send my children to Christian schools. I faithfully attend church. I'm faithful in all of these areas and therefore I know that I don't need those judgments. And God knows that I don't need those troubles in my life. But perhaps others, they need them. And it may serve to be useful that others have those kind of troubles. So quickly, beloved, our confidence is rooted in our flesh. What we do, how we maintain our lives, and pride rises up. A self-righteous spirit prevails. But also, those sometimes who experience trials and struggles in their lives are tempted to start thinking along these lines. Are we not? Pretty soon we start asking ourselves, What is God trying to tell me? Am I a greater sinner than someone else? Perhaps God hasn't given me a spouse, hasn't given me children. I start asking the question in my mind Is it because of something I've done? Is it because of who I am? that God is withholding from me these good gifts. We start thinking that people are looking down on us, perhaps. That others are not esteeming us. Or maybe God gives us children who are rebellious. Children who refuse to listen to instruction and admonition and discipline. And we wonder what we did wrong. Others are tempted to boast in their own godly children and how they turned out and how faithful their parenting was. And we look down on ourselves because evidently our parenting was not so faithful. And evidently we failed in that regard. Or maybe we have children with medical needs or children with special needs, and we begin to wonder, you know, why? Why me? Why us? Cancer, loss of jobs, hardship affect us. And we conclude there must be something in my life, especially tragic is this a sign of god's punishment on me why am i experiencing greater judgment than others now it's true as we know that there is a relation between sickness and suffering and sin the bible makes that clear the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt die as soon as sin entered into the world there were consequences And it's true that some of our sins indeed have direct consequences and God intends that there be that open connection between the two. What we do with our body can have an effect on our health. Smoking, overeating, undereating, doing drugs, drinking too much alcohol. These things are going to have an effect on our bodies and they're going to result potentially in certain consequences in our lives. But as a rule, divine providence is far too mysterious for us to unravel. We all will die in various ways. God uses plane crashes, car crashes. He uses cancer. He uses all different means to bring about the end of our earthly pilgrimage. And we can't make a judgment based on how we or our loved one dies. A judgment that has to do with our faithfulness or lack thereof. Stephen was stoned to death. James dies by the sword. Numerous of the apostles were killed as martyrs. Does that say something about them? Does it reflect on their walk and their conduct and their lives? Even though it's true, death is the judgment of God upon sin. And even though it's true that the wicked will perish in the way of death, we understand and we realize that God's providence is far more complex. God demands that the sinner will die. And that that death has both temporal and eternal consequences for those who continue unrepentantly in sin. All those who refuse to turn from their sin... Will perish. Repent or perish. And that perishing is sobering. It's everlasting judgment in hell. But for God's children, the judgment of God upon sin has been removed through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and bore the punishment that we deserved. He took upon Himself, the wrath that was ours as a result of our sin. And God no more looks upon His elect children as those who are sinners. God does not suffer His judgments to come upon us. But in love, He chastens us. We experience consequences due to sin. But that's God's chastening love. And God uses that to draw us closer To himself. Both the elect and the reprobate suffer in this life. For God's children, all sickness, all suffering is a consequence of sin in general, but it's been, the punishment has been taken by our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation. Apart from the fall, there would be no such tragedies. Apart from the fall, there would not be shootings, mass murders, devastation in nature. But man fell into sin. And therefore, death and suffering become part of the life of mankind here on earth. Some sickness, some death, very specific consequences of specific sins. But for the child of God, there is escape. For the child of God, there is that wonder by which God gives us to hear the gospel. We are called to an examination. And as we examine ourselves, Jesus directs us to the cross and the wonder of salvation in him. Jesus says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish rather than trying to determine God's purpose in these judgments and these events that take place around us, realize this. God is sending these judgments and increasingly they are going to get closer and closer to you and to me. And we experience sometimes them very close. But God is sending them for us. He's sending them to wake us up and to say, look at yourself. You too are going to die. Are you walking right with God? Are you maintaining a walk that's in accordance with His will? Don't focus on the sins of others. Rather, focus on your sin. Repent, lest you die in your sin unrepentantly. Don't focus on how those sins may be proportionate to your difficulties. But the point is to focus on your and my sin in general. The terrible death of these Galileans is to make every person, whether they're Galileans or not, to think not of the sins of the victims, but of my own sin and my own sinfulness. And how I may be delivered from those sins before I also die. Before God brings me to my end. My end is coming as well. And if I continue to attempt to worship God and mammon, and I try to live with my feet in both, I'm going to die and I'm going to perish everlastingly in hell. If I continue to walk in willful disobedience to God, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to perish everlastingly in hell. If I continue to party and to drink and to live it up and to live as though this life is going to continue and I can do whatever I want, there's going to be consequences. And those consequences are severe. You will die, perhaps tragically, and leave your family with little or no hope concerning your end. The Apostle said, or Jesus says, Repent. Or perish. This doesn't mean that all those who are impenitent are going to suffer a violent death. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. But what Jesus does say is just as some of these Galileans were swept away in death impenitently and thus perished forever so also there will be other impenitent individuals who perish forever when they die because they did not turn from their sin. They refused to repent. Now, tragically, beloved, this is what was happening to the majority of Jesus' audience. There were thousands that were following Jesus, and yet the majority refused to repent. They would not turn from their rebellion and from their sin. They went on as an apostate nation, Israel, forsaking the law, killing the prophets. And Jesus expresses that in the end of the chapter. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Now notice the distinction Jesus makes there between Jerusalem and her children. He's speaking judgment to Jerusalem, to the leaders. You killed the prophets. You continued unrepentantly in sin. I was busy gathering my children from among your children. And in no way does Jesus imply here that he failed. He accomplished that. He gathered every last one of his children from among the children of Jerusalem. Even as a hen brings her chicks under her wings... But they were resisting. They were standing in the way at every occasion. And now what's the result? Their house is left desolate. And Jesus says, you're not going to see me again until on judgment day. When I come back again. And from hell you are going to be required to say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You will acknowledge my return and my coming. They hardened themselves against Christ. They crucified Him. And consequently, the judgment of God came on Jerusalem. He sent the Roman legions about 70 A.D. to destroy Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed. The walls and the towers of the city were burned down. And during this destruction, the blood of many was shed at the altar. Thousands lost their lives as the city was destroyed by the enemy. Except you repent you also likewise shall perish. Now that destruction of Jerusalem was a picture of the end of the world. God destroyed Jerusalem in judgment. And God will once again come in judgment in order to destroy the entire world. And all those who refuse to repent will perish. Of that impending judgment, all suffering and all tragedies are a warning. And so when we hear of earthquakes and we hear of fires and we hear of tornadoes and hurricanes, we hear of disasters and shootings, we think of the end. And the response must be, the end is coming for me too. I need to repent lest I perish. Every calamity that sweeps men away is a divine call by God. Wake up. Your life is short. You also will face the end. Take heed. Now sometimes God causes such calamities to take place very close to us and they catch our breath. We realize how short our life is here below. And God works in us a serious soberness. We become sober with respect to our walk and our life here on earth. And we give thanks to God for teaching us to number our days. These calamities, we expect, will become more and more frequent as the end gets closer. Calamities in nature, persecution, violent death at the hands of wicked men. And even though they can seem far away for a time, and even though we're tempted sometimes to exempt ourselves because, after all, we go to church. We're God's children. We're more holy than those that are being killed. Except ye repent, you shall likewise also perish. God's intent, beloved, is to use these events not only to warn, but to bring His children to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart, it's a change of mind concerning sin. Repentance manifests itself in a godly sorrow with regard to sin. Whereas I was walking in this way, God now turns me. And I see that what I was doing was sinful and I need to go a different direction. I realize the horror of that trajectory of my life. And I need to turn. Many say they're sorry but give no concrete indication of true repentance. They're not willing to turn. Repentance is concretely laying aside that sin in order to walk now in the path of obedience. A person who's given to drunkenness may come to the elders with a request to join the church. He may be real sorry for all the pain, all the misery that he's caused his family in the past. But if he doesn't give up that bottle, he may not be admitted as a member of the church. He's not repentant. True repentance shows itself in being willing to turn away from that sin and to take action concretely to do battle against it and to fight it. A young person may confess his sin of drunkenness or sin against the seventh commandment, but then he leaves the consistory room just to go right back into that sin. That's not repentant. That's not turning. A man may be divorced and remarried and he expresses his sorrow for all the pain and agony that he caused his previous wife. Sorry for the divorce. Sorry for the events that led up to it. Sorry for remarrying, realizing now that it's sinful and it's wrong. And as it's laid before him, the truth of Scripture concerning that remarriage in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, he has a holy obligation. He needs to turn away from that second marriage. And if he's not willing to do so, if he's not repentant, He reflects and reveals the fact that he's continuing yet in that sin. He's not willing to turn in obedience to God's word. Now, beloved, that repentance is the work of God's grace. No man of himself would repent. But God mercifully, graciously bends the will, turns that one from sin unto himself, makes that one lay aside his or her sin. In order to turn to the way of obedience. Causes that one. To confess that sin to others. And to seek help. In the battle. Against that sin. Repentance is a looking to Christ. And the power of the cross. And confessing. I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me. He alone is the one. Who is able to assist me. And give me the power to turn and to be turned. It's a seeking of reconciliation with God through the blood of the cross. God through Jesus Christ has made a way of escape from the judgment of God. We hear the blessed word of the gospel. Jesus Christ took the judgment that I deserve on Himself. He suffered the most horrible death. Hell itself in order that I might never experience that judgment and that wrath against sin. He paid for my sins. And there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment of sin is removed. The punishment is gone. And death has been conquered. Beloved, we forsake sin and we turn to our Savior. In this week, As we examine ourselves, we go into our inner closet and we bear our hearts before our God. I know my sin. I know my unworthiness. And we confess that sin before God. And then we confess that sin toward others. We've not only sinned against God, we've sinned against others. He has delivered me. He has freed me from the bondage and horror of that sin. That sin held me in bondage, the bondage of hell. But He has delivered me. And what thankfulness rises from our hearts as we come out of our closet, confessing the wonder of His goodness and His mercy. Beloved, every day we celebrate that glorious victory that is ours in Christ. But especially in this coming week, As we examine our hearts and as we come to the table of the Lord, we do so to express our confidence and our hope in that wondrous sacrifice and in the victory that's ours in Him. We are self-righteous. We are inclined to every sin. I know my heart. I know my thoughts. That sincere examination, beloved, is yours and mine today and every day. Do I realize the tragic end that my life deserves? Do I know the death and hell that my sins require? And do I understand what God did for me in giving me His own Son? Do I understand the holiness, the righteousness of God? Am I standing in awe of this great God? And do I desire to live in thankfulness to Him all the days of my life. Walking before Him with gratitude. Beloved, we're not going to be living in that way if we're preoccupied with the sins of others. We're not going to be living in that way if we're refusing to repent and we're holding and continuing in sin. May God give us grace to see the events around us and in our own lives as that which works in us, that sensitivity, repent or perish and cause that we might look to Christ and know that unspeakable joy that will bring us together next week, rejoicing together in that perfect sacrifice through which alone there is deliverance. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, humble us. Turn us from our rebellion and our sinfulness. Work in us the humility by which we might acknowledge our sin before Thee and one another. And Lord, turn us that we might be turned. And that we might know the victory and the joy and the wonder of the cross. That we might know the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. That we might ever look to Him and cling to His sacrifice as that alone by which we have been cleansed. Amen.